Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 13 and 14 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 13 After dinner and till the beginning of the evening, Kitty was feeling a sensation akin to the sensation of a young man before a battle. Her heart throbbed violently, and her thoughts would not rest on anything. She felt that this evening, when they would both meet for the first time, would be a turning point in her life, and she was continually picturing them to herself, at one moment each separately, and then both together. When she mused on the past, she dwelt with pleasure, with tenderness, on the memories of her relations with Levin. The memories of childhood and of Levin's friendship with her dead brother gave a special poetic charm to her relations with him. His love for her, of which she felt certain, was flattering and delightful to her, and it was pleasant for her to think of Levin. In her memories of Vronsky, there always entered a certain element of awkwardness, though he was in the highest degree well-bred and at ease, as though there were some false note, not in Vronsky. He was very simple and nice, but in herself, while with Levin, she felt perfectly simple and clear. But, on the other hand, directly she thought of the future with Vronsky. There arose before her a perspective of brilliant happiness. With Levin, the future seemed misty. When she went upstairs to dress and looked into the looking-glass, she noticed with joy that it was one of her good days, and that she was in complete possession of all her forces. She needed 
this so far what lay before her. She was conscious of external composure and free grace in her movements. At half past seven, she had only just gone down into the drawing room when the footman announced Konstantin Dmitrovich Levin. The princess was still in her room, and the prince had not come in. So it is to be, thought Kitty, and all the blood seemed to rush to her heart. She was horrified at her paleness as she glanced into the looking-glass. At that moment she knew beyond doubt that he had come early on purpose to find her alone and to make her an offer. And only then, for the first time, the whole thing presented itself in a new, different aspect. Only then she realised that the question did not affect her only, with whom she would be happy and whom she loved, but that she would have that moment to wound a man whom she liked, and to wound him cruelly. What for? Because he, dear fellow, loved her, was in love with her. But there was no help for it, so it must be, so it would have to be. My God, shall I myself really have to say it to him, she thought. Can I tell him I don't love him? That will be a lie. What am I to say to him, that I love someone else? No, that's impossible. I'm going away. I'm going away. She had reached the door when she heard his step. No, it's not honest. What have I to be afraid of? I have done nothing wrong. What is to be, will be. I'll tell the truth, and with him one can't be ill at ease. Here he is, she said to herself, seeing his powerful, shy figure, with his shining eyes fixed on her. She looked straight into his face, as though imploring him to spare her, and gave her hand. It's not time yet. I think I'm too early, he said, glancing round the empty drawing room. When he saw that his expectations were realised, that there was nothing to prevent him from speaking. His face became gloomy. Oh no, said Kitty, and sat down at the table. But this was just what I wanted, to find you alone, he began, not sitting down, and not looking at her, 
so as not to lose courage. Mama will be down directly. She was very much tired yesterday. She talked on, not knowing what her lips were uttering, and not taking her supplicating and caressing eyes off him. He glanced at her. She blushed and ceased speaking. I told you I did not know whether I should be here long. That it depended on you. She dropped her head lower and lower, not knowing herself what answer she would make to what was coming. That it depended on you, he repeated. I meant to say, I meant to say, I came for this, to be my wife. He brought out, not knowing what he was saying, but feeling the most terrible thing was said. He stopped short and looked at her. She was breathing heavily, not looking at him. She was feeling ecstasy. Her soul was flooded with happiness. She had never anticipated that the utterance of love would produce such a powerful effect on her. But it lasted only an instant. She remembered Vronsky. She lifted her clear, truthful eyes, and seeing his desperate face, she answered hastily, That cannot be. Forgive me. A moment ago, and how close she had been to him, of what importance in his life, and how aloof and remote from him she had become now. It was bound to be so, he said, not looking at her. He bowed and was meaning to retreat. Chapter 14 But at that very moment the princess came in. There was a look of horror on her face when she saw them alone and their disturbed faces. Levin bowed to her and said nothing. Kitty did not speak nor lift her eyes. Thank God she has refused him, thought the mother, and her face lighted up with the habitual smile which she greeted her guests on Thursdays. She sat down and began questioning Levin about his life in the country. He sat down again, waiting for other visitors to arrive, in order to retreat unnoticed. Five minutes later, there came in a friend of Kitty's, married the preceding winter, Countess Nordston. She was a thin, sallow, sickly and nervous woman, 
with brilliant black eyes. She was fond of Kitty, and her affection for her showed itself, as the affection of married women for girls always does. In the desire to make a match for Kitty, after her own ideal married happiness, she wanted her to marry Vronsky. Levin she had often met at the Shabatskys early in the winter, and she had always disliked him. Her invariable and favourite pursuit, when they met, consisted in making fun of him. I do like it when he looks down at me from the height of his grandeur, or breaks off his learned conversation with me because I'm a fool, or is condescending to me. I like that so, to see him condescending. I am so glad he can't bear me, she used to say of him. She was right, for Levin actually could not bear her, and despised her for what she was proud of and regarded as fine characteristic. Her nervousness, her delicate contempt and indifference for everything coarse and earthly. The Countess Nordston and Levin got into that relation with one another, not seldom seen in society, when two persons, who remain externally on friendly terms, despise each other to such a degree that they cannot even take each other seriously, and cannot even be offended by each other. The Countess Nordston pounced upon Levin at once. Ah, Konstantin Dmitrovitch, so you've come back to our corrupt Babylon, she said, giving him her tiny yellow hand and recalling what he had chanced to say earlier in the winter, that Moscow was a Babylon. Come, is Babylon reformed, or have you degenerated? She added, glancing with a simper at Kitty. It's very flattering for me, Countess, that you remember my words so well, responded Levin, who had succeeded in recovering his composure, and at once from habit, dropped into his tone of joking hostility to the Countess Nordston. They must certainly make a great impression on you. Oh, I should think so. I always note them all down. Well, Kitty, have you been skating again? And she began talking to Kitty. Awkward as it was for Levin to withdraw now, it would still have been easier for him to perpetrate this awkwardness than to remain all the evening and see Kitty, 
who glanced at him now and then and avoided his eyes. He was on the point of getting up when the princess, noticing that he was silent, addressed him. Shall you be long in Moscow? You're busy with the district council, though, aren't you? And can't be away for long. No, princess, I'm no longer a member of the council, he said. I have come up for a few days. There's something the matter with him, thought Countess Norston, glancing at his stern, serious face. He isn't in his old, argumentative mood, but I'll draw him out. I do love making a fool of him before Kitty, and I'll do it. Konstantin Dmitrovich, she said to him. Do explain to me, please, what's the meaning of it? You know all about such things. At home in our village of Kaluga, all the peasants and all the women have drunk up all they possessed, and now they can't pay us any rent. What's the meaning of that? You always praise the peasants so. At that instant, another lady came into the room, and Levin got up. Excuse me, Countess, but I really know nothing about it, and can't tell you anything, he said, and looked round at the officer who came in behind the lady. That must be Vronsky, thought Levin, and, to be sure of it, glanced at Kitty. She had already had time to look at Vronsky, and looked round at Levin, and simply from the look in her eyes that grew unconsciously brighter, Levin knew that she loved that man, knew it as surely as if she had told him so in words. But what sort of man was he? Now, whether for good or for ill, Levin could not choose but to remain. He must find out what the man was like whom she loved. There are people who, on meeting a successful rival, no matter in what, are at once disposed to turn their backs on everything good in him and to see only what is bad. There are people, on the other hand, who desire above all to find in that lucky rival the qualities by which he has outstripped them, and seek with a throbbing ache at heart only what is good. Levin belonged to the second class, but he had no difficulty in finding what was good and attractive in Vronsky. It was apparent 
looked at first glance. Vronsky was a squarely built, dark man, not very tall, with a good-humoured, handsome, and exceedingly calm and resolute face. Everything about his face and figure, from his short, cropped black hair and freshly shaven chin, down to his loosely fitting, brand new uniform, was simple and at the same time elegant. Making way for the lady who had come in, Vronsky went up to the princess and then to Kitty. As he approached her, his beautiful eyes shone with a special tender light and with a faint, happy, and modestly triumphant smile. So it seemed to Levin. Bowing carefully and respectfully over her, he held out his small, broad hand to her. Greeting and saying a few words to everyone, he sat down without one glance at Levin who had never taken his eyes off him. Let me introduce you, said the princess, indicating Levin. Konstantin Dmitrovich Levin, Count Alexei Kirillovich Vronsky. Vronsky got up and, looking cordially at Levin, shook hands with him. I believe I was to have dined with you this winter, he said, smiling his simple and open smile. But you had unexpectedly left for the country. Konstantin Dmitrovich despises and hates town and us town people, said Countess Nordston. My words must make a deep impression on you, since you remember them so well, said Levin, and, suddenly conscious that he had said just the same thing before, he reddened. Vronsky looked at Levin and Countess Nordston and smiled. Are you always in the country? he inquired. I should think it must be dull in the winter. It's not dull if one has work to do. Besides, one's not dull by oneself, Levin replied abruptly. I am fond of the country, said Vronsky, noticing and affecting not to notice Levin's tone. But I hope Count, you would not consent to live in the country always, said Countess Nordston. I experienced a queer feeling once, he went on. I never longed so for the country, Russian country, with bast shoes and peasants, as when I was spending a winter with my mother in Nice. Nice itself is dull enough, 
you know. And indeed, Naples and Sorrento are only pleasant for a short time. And it's just there that Russia comes back to me most vividly, and especially the country. It's as though... As he talked on, addressing both Kitty and Levin, turning his serene, friendly eyes from one to the other, he says obviously just what came to his head. Noticing that Countess Nordston wanted to say something, he stopped short without finishing what he had begun and listened attentively to her. The conversation did not flag for an instant, so that the princess, who always kept in reserve, in case the subject could be lacking, two heavy guns. The relative advantages of classical and of modern education and universal military service had not to move out either of them, while Countess Nordston had not a chance of chafing Levin. Levin wanted to, and could not, take part in the general conversation, saying to himself every instant, Now go. He still did not go, as though waiting for something. The conversation fell upon table-turning and spirits. The Countess Nordston, who believed in spiritualism, began to describe the marvels she had seen. Ah, Countess, you really must take me, for pity's sake. Do take me to see them. I have never seen anything extraordinary, though I am always on the lookout for it everywhere, said Vronsky, smiling. Very well. Next Saturday, answered Countess Nordston. But you, Konstantin Dmitrievich, do you believe in it? she asked Levin. Why do you ask me? You know what I shall say. But I want to hear your opinion. My opinion, answered Levin, is only that this table-turning simply proves that educated society, so-called, is no higher than the peasants. They believe in the evil eye and in witchcraft and omens, while we... Oh, then you don't believe in it. I can't believe in it, Countess. But I've seen it myself. The peasant women, too, tell us they have seen goblins. Then you think I tell a lie, and she laughed a mirthless laugh. Oh, no, Masha. Konstantin Dmitrievich said he could not believe in it, said Kitty, blushing for Levin. And Levin saw this 
and, still more exasperated, would have answered. But Vronsky, with his bright, frank smile, rushed to support the conversation, which was threatening to become disagreeable. You do not admit the conceivability at all, he queried. But why not? We admit the existence of electricity, of which we know nothing. Why should there not be some new force, still unknown to us, which, when electricity was discovered, Levin interrupted hurriedly, it was only the phenomenon that was discovered, and it was unknown from what it proceeded and what were its effects, and ages passed before its applications were conceived. But the spiritualists have begun with tables writing for themselves, and spirits appearing to them, and have only later started saying that it is an unknown force. Vronsky listened attentively to Levin, as he always did listen, obviously interested in his words. Yes, but the spiritualists say we don't know at present what this force is, but there is a force, and these are the conditions in which it acts. Let the scientific men find out what the force consists in. No. I don't see why there should not be a new force, if it... Why, because with electricity, Levin interrupted again, every time you rub tar against wool, a recognized phenomenon is manifested. But in this case, it does not happen every time, and so it follows it is not a natural phenomenon. Feeling probably that the conversation was taking a tone too serious for a drawing room, Vronsky made no rejoiner, but by way of trying to change the conversation, he smiled brightly and turned to the ladies. Do let us try at once, Countess, he said but Levin would finish saying what he thought. I think, he went on, that this attempt of the spiritualists to explain their marvels as some sort of new, natural force is most futile. They boldly talk of spiritual force and then try to subject it to material experiment. Everyone was waiting for him to finish, and he felt it. And I think you would be a first-rate medium, said Countess Nordston. There's something enthusiastic about you. Levin opened his mouth, was about to say something, reddened, and said nothing. Do let us try table-turning at once, please, 
said Vronsky. Princess, will you allow it? And Vronsky stood up, looking for a little table. Kitty got up to fetch a table, and as she passed, her eyes met Levin's. She felt for him with her whole heart, the more because she was pitying him for suffering of which she herself was the cause. If you can forgive me, forgive me, said her eyes. I am so happy. I hate them all, and you, and myself, his eyes responded, and he took up his hat. But he was not destined to escape. Just as they were arranging themselves round the table, and Levin was on the point of retiring, the old prince came in, and after greeting the ladies, addressed Levin. Ah, he began joyously. Been here long, my boy. I didn't even know you were in town. Very glad to see you. The old prince embraced Levin, and talking to him did not observe Vronsky, who had risen, and was serenely waiting till the prince should turn to him. Kitty felt how distasteful her father's warmth was to Levin after what had happened. She saw, too, how coldly her father responded at last to Vronsky's bow, and how Vronsky looked with amiable perplexity at her father as though trying and failing to understand how and why anyone could be hostilely disposed towards him, and she flushed. Prince, let us have Konstantin Dmitrovich, said Countess Nordston. We want to try an experiment. What experiment? Table-turning. Well, you must excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, but to my mind it is better fun to play the ring game, said the old prince, looking at Vronsky, and guessing that it had been his suggestion. There's some sense in that anyway. Vronsky looked wonderingly at the prince with his resolute eyes, and with a faint smile, began immediately talking to Countess Nordston of the great ball that was to come off next week. I hope you will be there, he said to Kitty. As soon as the old prince turned away from him, Levin went out unnoticed, and the last impression he carried away with him of that evening was the smiling, happy face of Kitty, answering Vronsky's inquiry about the ball.